0: I want to begin today just with a, a brief recapitulation of what we've talked about thus far, just to try to tie it all together as we approach a major watershed when it comes to priesthood. Uh, so just by way of a short review, uh, we began with Adam, and we saw how he and Eve functioned as priests in the garden. Uh, and what were Adam and Eve commanded to do besides subduing the earth? What were they commanded to do? Yeah, to, be, to go forth and to be fruitful and multiply. What does that mean then in a, in a priestly context? Well, that means if they have more kids those kids will also be, what, made how? In the image of God. So, they, so part of their priestly duty is to, to fill the world with more image bearers. So they, it's not just that God wants them to have kids. He wants them to fill the world with more people who share in his likeness, or are made in his likeness. And share in some of his attributes. And so, in a sense, he is telling them to fill the world with a priesthood because humanity, well, Adam and Eve, they were the point, the initial point of contact between God and the world that he made. So, you have God up here, and you have the world down here. And where do those two things meet? In Adam, where he is of the world. He is a creation made of the dust of the world, but he is also breathed in by the Spirit of God and made in the image of God. So the world and God meet in the persons of Adam and Eve. And so they are, in effect, the mediators between God and his creation. And so when he tells them to subdue it, he wants them to rule over it as he rules over the, the, the universe. I mean, not even the the physical universe but the things beyond creation he rules over them and he commands Adam and Eve to rule over the thing that he made and to fill it with more priests so then we move on from Adam and we do see priestly activity continuing after him in Cain and Abel and Noah or Cain and Abel and Seth and Noah Noah being the most prominent example of those where he is offering sacrifices and blessing things and, and making a covenant with God. But after that, then God opens a new chapter of significant priestly activity in the world. A significant, when I say priest, you could say a significant chapter in God's mediation between himself and his world. And that is with Abraham. And as it said at the beginning of Hebrews 5, the high priest, the priests are not self-appointed. They don't designate themselves to, to be priests, but God calls them. And what did God do with Abraham? He called him out of Ur. And so Abraham goes into the service of God, and he Performs many priestly duties. He performs sacrifices. He builds altars. There's the incident with Isaac in chapter 22, which is it has significant priestly ramifications, and so on. But then, what are what are God's promises to him? What's the first promise that God makes to Abraham? Yeah. He's going to have descendants. And what does that harken back to? Adam and Eve. So just as God commanded Adam and Eve to fill the world with image bearers, so too is he telling Abraham and Sarah to, they're going to have a, a, a nation of a dis. That nations will be descended from them. In effect, that is to say that more image bearers that God has ordained to do his service. So there is a parallel there between Adam and Abraham. And that parallel is continued to who else? Who else are promised the same things Abraham has promised? No, Isaac and Jacob. They're the patriarchs because God makes those promises to them. And we haven't really talked about it, but Isaac and Jacob also perform priestly tasks, building altars and things of that nature. And they are also promised the same things that Abraham has promised. Yeah, but they're not called the way the others are. So, sure. And then we take another step forward when Abraham encounters whom? Melchizedek. And he is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. I mean, his name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. And he is recognized as the king of Jerusalem, of Salem, which in Hebrew means peace. So he is his name says he is the king of righteousness, his position is that of the king of peace. And in the book of Hebrews, that is recognized explicitly as a foreshadowing of Christ. So but more, more importantly, Melchizedek is the first one in the Bible who is recognized explicitly, not just by his actions, but by explicitly as a priest. And not just any priest, but a priest of Yahweh, or El Elyon, God Most High. And Abraham recognizes his superiority and offers tithes to him. And at the same time, Melchizedek blesses Abraham and blesses God, which is to say he praises God. So he's offering, he's, he is giving God's blessing to Abraham, and he is praising God for what he does. What is that? That is the essential mediation of God to his creation. He is representing God before the people, and he's representing the people before God. That is exactly what a priest is supposed to do. And we see that, I mean, Melchizedek's only there for three verses, 18, 19, and 20, in chapter 14 of Genesis. And yet there is so much to be mined out of that. And it is not accidental that right after Abraham receives the blessing from the king of righteousness, that... and and who introduces to Abraham the term El Elyon. And right after that, Abraham declares his allegiance to God Most High. And then right after that, I mean, these things are in proximity for a reason. It's just boom, boom, boom in Genesis 15, 6, where it says that Abraham's faith was reckoned to him as what? Righteousness. And that's on the heels of being blessed by the king of righteousness. So Melchizedek is, is mediating this between God and Abraham, and it's on that basis that the covenant is actually cut between God and Abraham. And then, who did we talk about next? And this is the pivotal guy in a lot of ways. Jethro. Now, it, it's, it's kind of, it's easy to overlook Jethro, because he's kind of, the meat of what he's talking about is deep in Exodus. It's after the passing of, through the Red Sea, and, you know, that's kind of where I usually stopped reading. And, uh, Sorry. So he, he kind of gets overlooked, and the significance of, of Jethro is easy to overlook, in part because we have to see the big picture in order to get down to the specifics of what's going on with him. So we talked about how he kind of fit into things last week, but now we're going to talk about more about the fruit of what he did this week, because he is the pivot in the text in a lot of ways... Uh, in a variety of ways, with regards to the priesthood. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. Um, So, prior to the actual exodus from Egypt, God institutes a new priesthood. And it's not one that we talk about very often. But it's often, when it is discussed, it is usually referred to as the priesthood of the firstborn. Is anyone familiar with that? No? No? I mean, it's, it's bigger than Moses. And I'll tell you now that this is looking forward in a lot of ways to where we're at now. So let's talk about this priesthood of the firstborn. Yes, you are. I'm sorry. It's, it's hard to pack things in sometimes. Um, okay. So, you know, when we think of Israel, we think, of, what, what priesthood do we think of? The Levitical priesthood. But God had something else in mind first. He had another plan. And just like sin marred that plan in Eden so too now is sin going to mar this plan. And just as Eden will one day be restored through, you know, through the work of Christ, so too now will this priestly order also, in a, in a sense, be restored also in Christ. So let's talk about this priestly order, the order of the firstborn. And... So turn with me to uh, Exodus 13. Uh, John Wait, uh, do you have all the extra notes? Uh, John just went out. I don't know if he, if there's any out there or not. OK, thanks, Wait. Prolegomena. That is just a term that in theological circles is kind of like an introductory statement. It literally means just that which is said before. So just usually in a theological treatise or something like that, there will be something called a prolegomena. It's kind of like an introduction. Sure. Okay, so turn to Exodus 13, uh, and we'll just start with one and verses 1 and 2. And it says, And the Lord's. No, okay, hold on. But let me. Let me. Before I even start, this is right after God gives the, uh, the instructions for the Passover. And uh, so it's before they leave Egypt and cross through the Red Sea. Okay, so this is not, they have not yet left Egypt. And it's right after the Passover itself, but they're still in Egypt. And God says, the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and beast, is mine. So God is, he is saying that when you consecrate something, what does that mean? It means to make something holy. So when the priests had to enter the temple, when they were going to enter the temple, they had to consecrate themselves to purify themselves and make themselves holy in order to be able to go into the temple or the tabernacle and so on. So God is claiming them to be the firstborn to be his priests, in effect. He's calling the firstborn of Israel into his service. And that is looking forward to Exodus 19, 5 and 6, which we'll be going back to a few times here, where he says, now therefore, he's talking to Moses, they have now arrived in Sinai, and they have met with Jethro. And we'll talk about the meeting with Jethro here in a minute. But God says to Moses, he says, I lost my place here. He says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now, how can there be... What? No, I said Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Sorry. We're going to be going back to 19, 5 and 6 a lot. I mean, it's, it's, that'll be a, a repeating thing. So... So, after, so we have seen already that God has claimed the firstborn of Israel to be consecrated to him, which, mean, which to be made holy, the consecration is something where God is claiming them for himself, that he's claiming them into his service. And we see in Exodus 19, 5 and 6, that God intends for who to be priests? the whole the kingdom he, there to be a kingdom of priests all of Israel is to be priests now we're familiar with the levitical priesthood are we not okay that is nowhere to be seen here that has nothing to do with this so god is he has already singled out the firstborn for his service and he is calling them to be a kingdom of priests now is this something that God is introducing for the first time no go back to Exodus 4 I'm sorry there's going to be a lot of bouncing around today it's, you just kind of have to put a lasso around it and pull it all together Okay, Exodus 4 22 and 23 Moses goes back to Egypt after encountering God on Sinai. And God says to Moses, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So, is God talking about A specific group within Israel? Is he talking about Moses or the Levites? No, he's talking about the whole nation of Israel, which in 19, 5, and 6, we see that God is calling to be a kingdom of what? A kingdom of priests. And yet, before that, in 13, God has set aside the firstborn to function as the priests. Okay, so now who here in Exodus 4, when addressing Pharaoh, is God calling his firstborn? The whole nation of Israel. And they're to do what? Look at verse 5. or uh, uh, 23, rather. I get 5 and 6, I'm already getting it all mixed up in my head. So verse 23 says, Let my son, let my firstborn go, that he may what? Serve me. That is a priestly duty. To serve God is to be a priest. I mean, to to do that work of service is a priestly work. So we have in Exodus 13, God setting aside the firstborn. In Exodus 19, we have God calling them to be a kingdom of priests. And in Exodus 4, it ties it together where he is recognizing the whole nation as his firstborn who are called to his service. So you have a priesthood of the firstborn. And this priesthood is really instituted by the act of Passover. So it's right after Passover that God has the firstborn set aside to him. But it's the, act of, it's the Passover itself that is the institution of this new priesthood. So how does God distinguish the firstborn of Israel? Remember, who is spared from the angel of death? Is it all the people of Israel or a specific set of people in Israel? It's the firstborn. Because it's all the firstborn are going to be killed. Unless, like, whether you're Hebrew, Egyptian, whatever. You're all gonna be, they're all going to be killed unless what? Unless what? No, well, yeah, but, but what's the act that's going to preserve? When the angel of death comes through Egypt? Yeah, the blood on the doorposts and on the lintel. Now. Sure. Sure. Uh, that is a good question, and it's one of the weirdest passages in the Bible. It is. And there is an answer to that, but it's not really where I want to go right now. OK. Maybe sometime we can do a uh, like a study on difficult passages in the Bible. Yes. Yeah. No, it's 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 a heap of fun. Um Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. This is we will we will get there. We're not there yet. But when we get to the end of the class, we will get there. So just w- good. <laughs> so no, but I, I, I promise we will we will get there. That's just not where we're at yet. Okay. Um let me let me well, let me let me just say this. At the end of this, we're going to talk about what we call the priesthood of the believer. Are you a believer? Then you are in the priesthood, okay? Doesn't matter. So just, but that we're going there. but we're not there yet. But I lost my place. Crum. Okay, so, okay, yeah, yeah, here we go. Here we go. Okay. So, what what prevented, when the angel of death passes through Egypt, what prevents the firstborn from being killed? The blood. Okay, now, how do we get that blood? By making a sacrifice, and then sprinkling the blood on the doorpost and the lintel. Now... Is that a priestly activity? You better believe it. When you get to Leviticus, you will see that only the priests are to be making the sacrifices, and only the priests are to be sprinkling the blood on the altar to make atonement. So those who God has called the heads of the households to sacrifice the lamb and sprinkle the blood on the doorposts and lintels are doing an essentially priestly activity. And they are, in doing that, inaugurating this new priesthood of the firstborn because it's right after that that God is going to claim them for his service. Does that make sense? So we have this new... Priesthood growing. And that brings us then to back to Jethro. So we introduced Jethro last week as a priest who is following in the footsteps of who? Melchizedek. So it's, it's not, and I, I, re, I pasted back in that structure, the parallel structure from Genesis and Exodus, that gives us some of the clues necessary to see that Melchizedek is, in fact, functioning as a priest in the language of Psalm 110 and, and in Hebrews in the order of Melchizedek. And you'll note that the first two high priests of God that we see in the Bible are not. Hebrews, and that is significant because this isn't meant... God's people are not meant for the salvation of God's people. I mean, the Hebrews, Israel, they're meant to be a witness to the world, to bring the world into a right relationship with Yahweh. They are intended to be a kingdom of priests, to mediate between God and his creation. So we often think of them as, you know, his people, like they're the ones that God picked to save. It's not it. It's God picked them to be in his service, and they are to mediate to the rest of the world. All the world is God's people. Obviously, he has a special people that he has called to his service. But Melchizedek, Jethro, the first high priests of God that we see in the Bible they are not Hebrews well he was a Salemite and a Midianite I mean Melchizedek was the king of Salem and which really is a Canaanite yeah when Melchizedek was there there was just one or just two there was Abraham and Sarah And that's it. No. I mean, that's what I'm saying. The point is, God's people don't even exist yet. God, When Melchizedek is there, God has just called the first of the three patriarchs. You really don't have a a, a nation until Jacob has 12 sons. And that's the beginning of the the nation itself they go down and and who goes down to Egypt it's Jacob and his family and it's while it, it's in Egypt it's like they are it's like Egypt is like the womb that they are ge- that the nation is gestating in and then the exodus is the birth that is taking place of the nation so okay so <clears throat> so there's the, these this parallel structure that exists in exodus, in Genesis, roughly Genesis twelve through fifteen through exodus i don't know uh, you know eleven through nineteen. I put it down in the notes, but I can't remember what it is off the top of my head so. So what we see it's on the bottom of the second page you can see the parallel structure. So okay, but the suffice to say at this point, and this is what we talked about last week is that Jethro is functioning as a priest in the order of Melchizedek and there's a lot of parallels between Jethro and Melchizedek. We see the order, the parallel structure in Genesis and Exodus in those passages that pertain to the narratives that involve Melchizedek and Jethro, we see the order, the parallels rather, in how they conduct their meals with Melchizedek, with Abraham, and Jethro with Moses. And also, and this is really, really important, but we also see how their prayers, the prayer of Melchizedek and the prayer of Jethro, on behalf of Abraham and Moses, also are are parallel prayers, so it's establishing the activity of Jethro in the pattern of Melchizedek. And that then is, like the, is the gateway, and we look and see what Jethro has to say to Moses in terms of governing the people. And the essence of that governance is delegation. He says you need to call people to service under you to mediate for the people. And that is in a sense a fleshing out of this priesthood of the firstborn. So it's the same guys that that are are set aside that God has called in Genesis 13 are the same types of guys that Jethro is instructing Moses to to set aside to govern and mediate the people. It's really, it's Exodus 18, 24, uh, 17 through 23. So, and Moses does this. It says that he does what his father-in-law told him to do, which then sets up, What happens in in Exodus 19? And in Exodus 19, we have first, God says that they will be a kingdom of priests. But then later on in 19, in verses 22 and again in 24, I mean, you can look at it right now. It says that he calls the priests to consecrate themselves. And then he has the priests there to maintain order so the people don't follow Moses up the mountain when he goes to meet God. Now I ask you, where did those priests come from? Because they're not Levitical priests. Does this make sense? Where is all this going? Are you asking yourself that? Okay. Okay. It's okay, it's confusing, but the point is the point is that there is a priesthood that God has instituted before the Levitical priesthood. It's the priesthood of the firstborn. And the whole chapter of the whole section of 19, chapter 19 is a really really great chapter. And there's a lot of meditation that can be done on that chapter. So I wrote, I broke down kind of a short outline just as an aside to this passage about the structure of 19. This is on the middle of the third page. And it says, so I, I note that the theme of this is that, that the whole passage is priestly in nature. And God is holy and therefore to adhere to his word for service That we approach him through a mediator. That's a priest, and we adore him in purity and fearful reverence. You know that that's the action of a priest mediating God to His people. So then, what we can take from that is, if so, there you look at. You can see I and the three little Roman numerals. If the people of God will obey Him, they will be privileged to serve Him in a unique way. If the people of God are to obey, they must be convinced these are God's commands. And if the people of God are convinced of the divine approval of their mediator and the divine source of their instructions, they must sanctify themselves before him. So the, the manifestation of God's holiness in this, first, in this meeting is the is a reason for us to sanctify ourselves and to worship which is what God is calling them to do in this passage. We're going to get there when we talk about 1 Peter chapter 2. So, I'm just this is just an aside cuz we're going to circle back to this. I know this is a lot. I know it's a lot. But let me, get, let me get back on track. So just ignore the, that aside if you want, because we'll talk about that more towards the end of the class. We'll come back to this when we talk about 1 Peter 2. So, okay. Here's where this is going. Oh, hold on. Let me, let me tell you where this goes, and then I'll tell you where we're going. So, this isn't in the notes, but what happens to this priesthood? Wait. By what? Why? When? Okay. So, this priest, God gives, in the context of this priesthood, God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. And what happens to that original Ten Commandments? Yeah, why? Why? Exactly. So after these people had been called to serve, after the whole nation had been called to serve God, that priesthood did what? They served a false god. So God is going to end that priesthood pretty much as soon as it begins, and he is going to replace it with the Levitical priesthood. Why Levites? Because when the nation blasphemes and apostates itself and worships the golden calf, the one tribe that rejected it outright in total are the Levites. Yeah, you bet he is. You bet he did. Aaron did it. The rest of the Levite tribe did not. The Levites stayed true to Moses. And yet who is going to be made the high priest? Aaron and his descendants. We're going to talk about that next week. But I'll give you a preview And we're going to talk about, you're going to hear this again next week, but here's a preview. When God, when God told Abraham, if I say Abraham at this point, I mean Moses. If, when God <laughs> tells Moses to go talk to Pharaoh, does Moses gripe about how he can't do it? And so does God make a concession to Moses? Yes. What's the concession? Take, take Abraham. Take Moses. Take, take Aaron. Okay. Which I obviously can't. <laughs> so, okay. So it's a concessive... Aaron, Aaron is inherently a concession by God. That concession to take Aaron... Is going to be related to Aaron's elevation to the high priestly position. God is making a concession, and it is in the law. There is an expectation in the law. We're going to talk about this next week. There is an expectation in the law that the, Levit, that the priesthood of Aaron will fail, that is in the Bible. God expects, expects the priesthood of Aaron to fail. Why is that significant? Because that's not the high priesthood that is going to make eternal atonement for our sins. God knows that that priesthood will fail. Aaron, from the very beginning, from his first entrance into the text, is a concession by God. It's a, just the same way he conceded to the people to let them have Saul, he's going to let them have Aaron. They're going to get a, They're going to get Aaron good and hard. So, uh, so we'll get to that next week. So next week is going to be Levite galore here. So come if you want. That was Eli and Samuel both had sons who were, well, Aaron had a bad priest. Yeah, yeah. so they all, they're all, they're all <laughs> corrupt. Um, okay. So, so that's what happens. That's not, I didn't put the golden calf in the notes, I meant to, but. That's where the priesthood of the firstborn went. But what I really want to talk about is, where is it going? What's the point of all of that? Why did God have this? And what's what's the rule? What God has done in the past is a model and a promise for what he will do in the future. How is the priesthood of the firstborn a model and a promise for what he will do in the future. So let's, that's what I want to talk about. Why, why, what is the significance of this episode? So let's, let's look at what Jethro tells Moses in 1820. Now remember, Jethro is functioning as a high priest in the same way Melchizedek was. And he's giving Moses advice on how to govern the people. And he says, uh, let me back up to 19. He says, "Now, now obey my voice, I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God. Remember, is that a priestly activity? Yes, it is. So he's talking in priestly terms. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, priestly, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Statutes, laws, and the way they must walk. What statutes and laws are? are there at this point has the law even been given yet no but look back at genesis 26 4 and 5 now this is this is god talking to isaac but he's talking about isaac about abraham to isaac and he says i will multiply your descendants so they will be numerous as the stars in the sky. And I will give them all these lands. All the nations of the earth will pronounce blessings on one another. Using the names, the name of your descendants. And here's the key part. All this will come to pass because why? Because Abraham obeyed me. And kept my, cha- my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So all the way back to Abraham... We have people keeping all of these things that God has, these ordered ways that he has. Has any law yet been given? No. So what? what's going on here? Well, that language of laws and statutes, and so on, we can see how the things that we need to do are in many ways, to to behave rightly before God, are built into us, part of our being made in the image of God. It's what we talked about in our Sunday school class, what we we call communicable attributes. Attributes. So they are attributes that God has that we share with him. And a lot of those attributes are what we call moral attributes. We know goodness. We know wrongness. When, we ate, when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree, they learned what? The knowledge of good and evil. So, but there are many things that are internal Within us, and we see it repeatedly. Use these terms: statutes, laws, statutes and laws, statutes and laws. And we see that especially in Deuteronomy, which is the literally it just means the second giving of the law. No, well, kind of. I mean, no, nomia is the Greek word for law, and Deuteronomy, you know, the law is given to. The nation in Exodus and expanded in Leviticus. That's the nation that came out of the land. But then at Kadesh Barnea, they sin and they don't go do what they're supposed to do again. And so God condemns the generation that came out of Egypt to wander in the desert for 40 years. And the nation dies off. So when Joshua leads the nation into the land, it's not the nation that left Israel, it's the second generation. And Deuteronomy, it literally is just Greek for the second law. It's Moses is giving the people the law for the second time as they're about to enter into the land. So they're on, they're on the east bank of the Jordan, about to cross the Jordan, and God gives them the law again before they go into the land. Their parents' generation is the one that received the law in Sinai. In Deuteronomy, the second generation is receiving the law on the cusp of going into God's rest. Does that make sense? Okay. So this concept of laws and statutes existing before the law has actually been written, is there precedent for that elsewhere in the Bible? And I would contend yes, there is. For example, it's spelled out pretty clearly in Romans chapter 2 verses 11 through 16. For there is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned apart from the law will also perish, will also perish apart from the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law for it is not those who bear who hear the law who are righteous before God but those who do the law will be declared righteous and here's now listen to this for whenever the gentiles who do not have the law do by nature the things required by the law these who do not have the law are a law unto themselves they show that the work of the law is what written in their hearts as their conscience bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or else defend them on the day when God will judge the secrets of human hearts according to my gospel through Jesus Christ. So Paul is recognizing that there is a law that is built into the human heart that recognizes what is good according to God and what is not so even those who are not of Israel who are not living under the law are still accountable for for their sins on the basis of the law that is written upon their hearts that's exactly what it is but God has written his ways on the human heart so when Abraham, when it says that Abraham kept God's statutes and his commandments, he was keeping that which God places on the human heart, which there is a built-in law in each of us. We know what's right and what's wrong. You know, we know when we're doing something we shouldn't do. And I'm not saying that that is a substitute for the gospel, but that's part of being made in the image of God. We know what is of God and what is not. By God. Absolutely it is. I mean, and this is coming off the heels. I mean, this is... When when Paul says this at the beginning of of chapter 2, it's coming right after the latter part of chapter 1. I know that's a surprise. Um, but what does he say in that? He, it says that those... They saw those things that God had made and worshipped the creation rather than the creator. So they they saw God's revelation and they sinned by ignoring he who made it. So that law is written on our hearts. We see that in Abraham. There's parallels in Abraham in chapter 13 and chapter 14 and how he conducts himself in the war against the four kings. And in Deuteronomy, I can't remember what it is, chapter 20, I think, 1 through 15, I think it is. It's in the notes somewhere. Don't quote me on what I said. Find it in the notes. But there's parallels in how God tells Israel to conduct itself in war with how Abraham conducts himself in war. So he had it written on his heart, like this is what's right, this is what's wrong. Does that make sense? And that finally leads us then to the new covenant. Who knows what that is? So turn to, or it's in the notes, but Jeremiah thirty-one 33. You're on the last page. I'm sorry, guys. I'm throwing a lot out there. <laughs> okay, so let me read. So this is in, in uh, at the end of, towards the end of Jeremiah. And remember, Jeremiah is is like the wailing prophet. He is the prophet to Israel after Judah has been destroyed, and the people have been exiled, and everything in the land is a smoking ruin. But towards the end, there's a few chapters where he gets hopeful, and it's often called the Book of Consolation. It's like chapters, I, I can't remember what it is, 30 through 33 or 34. But Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34 is particularly important. So let me read that. It says, Indeed, a time is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. It will not be like the old covenant, which is the one that's about to be cut between Moses and... And God on Sinai, when Jethro is giving him this advice when when the covenant is first made i 'm pausing here i'm sorry this is what i'm saying isn't in the Bible um, so that was supposed to be a joke um, what I lost my train of thought. dang it yeah, when the covenant is first made it's it's still looking at the priesthood of the firstborn when the Ten Commandments are first given, the first covenant, with you know, the Sinai covenant. So he says, let me backtrack, I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah it will not be like the old covenant that I made with their ancestors when I delivered them from Egypt. For they violated that covenant even though I was like a faithful husband to them. Remember Hosea, says the Lord. But I will make a new covenant with the whole nation of Israel after I plant them back in the land, says the Lord. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts and minds. I will be their God. They will be my people. People will no longer need to teach their neighbors and relatives to know me for all of them from the least important to the most important will know me, says the Lord, for I will forgive their sin and will no longer call to mind the wrong they have done. Now, where do we see that new covenant? And I will answer you with this, everywhere in the New Testament. For example, when Christ is celebrating the Passover at the Last Supper, Let's turn to Luke, chapter 22. So chapter 22, verse 20. I'll just backtrack a little bit. And then he took the bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So what Christ is doing and about to do is ratifying the new covenant that God has promised that he will give to the people. What are the things the what are the blessings that are going to come from this? Yeah. Let's look at Ezekiel 36. Now, the only place in the, new Test, in the Old Testament that God, that it, it references a new covenant is Jeremiah 31. That's the only place. But we see the same covenant referenced elsewhere. So look at Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. It says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you, within you, and cause you to walk, what's this, in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So those statutes are the same statutes in a way That we have already seen in Abraham, that Jethro is instructing Moses to point the priesthood of the firstborn towards. They're the same stat, they're the same things that are written on the hearts of the people in Jeremiah 31. Again, it says, if I could find it, they show that the work of the law is written in their hearts as their conscience bears witness—oh, wait, that's the wrong one. Sorry, that's Paul. Disregard that. I, was, I should always look it up in my Bible. Uh, I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts and minds. I will be their God, and they will be my people. So let me tie it all together, okay? So hang on. So we have this priesthood of the firstborn that God institutes. There's no Levites. I mean, there are Levites who are in this, but it's not restricted to the Levites. All the firstborn of Israel. And God has said that Israel itself, the nation, will be his firstborn. And it is to serve him. So God has called the firstborn to lead the nation in service as priests before God. They will be a kingdom of priests. Does that make sense? You got that? Okay. And within that priesthood, there are statutes and commandments that are written on their hearts. They don't, God has not given them, like He gives the Ten Commandments, like He gives the Levitical law, He is not giving that to them. The priesthood of the firstborn is to lead the people in the statutes and commandments that are innate within people in their awareness of God, in effect. I'm probably wording that not as well as I could. But they are leading the people in the law of conscience, you could say. And we see that this is a reality when Paul says so in Romans. But that priesthood is done away with. Because as soon as they are really exercising that priesthood, they take that priesthood and they trash it by worshiping a false god that they, are, that they made themselves. They were called to be priests of God, and they were priests of a golden cow. That's not a fair trade, you might say. It's really, really awful and ugly, actually. So, that priesthood is basically God presses pause on that. And he gives them a new priesthood, a concessive priesthood, a lesser priesthood, just as Aaron is an inherently lesser guy. And we'll talk about that next week. So, Aaron is lesser than the priesthood that came before him. And his priesthood will ultimately be done away with. And in a sense, the priesthood of the firstborn will be resurrected because it will be, again, that God's people will be a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood. And that which they were to be instructed in initially, the commandments and statutes of God pre-Sinai, the things that are written on the heart by God as, as being made in the image of God, the new covenant, which is Christ, is going to restore that. It's going His law will be written on people's hearts. So it's going to go, there's going to be a, a big gap where the Levites are the priests, but the priesthood, that was there before, in a sense, will be restored in Christ. Does this make sense? It all fits together. Like, these are all things that we kind of overlook, but it's, it's all there for a reason. Yes. So that is why, and this is where the whole class is going. If you want to turn to 1 Peter 2.9. We're going to end back here, so I don't want to spend a lot of time here. But 1 Peter 2.9, Peter says, But you are a chosen race, and here's a key part, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The church is that royal priesthood. We are all a part of that royal priesthood. Yes, that Christ is bringing the He brings He. He inaugurates the new covenant. The covenant that's listed, that's discussed in Jeremiah, that's referenced in Ezekiel. Yes and yes. No, so there is a part of us that as being made in the image of God where we are innately aware of what is right and what is wrong. But, and we'll get more into this, I don't, so I'm not trying to not give you a full answer, but this is where we're going to end the class for a couple of weeks. We're going to camp here. But in being redeemed by Christ, being participants in the new covenant, through the Holy Spirit, we will have that written on our hearts anew. Yes and yes. Yes. In effect, yes. Partially. No, I know. What I'm saying is it's it's very circular, but... So and how do we, how do we, how do we see this circling back to the priesthood of Melchizedek and Jethro? And I'll close with this. Where? Yes. So, we see. what? Yeah. But we see this, this new covenant is linked back. If you turn to Hebrews 8. <clears throat> so let me give you a quick outline of Hebrews 8, or he- Hebrews 7 and 8, or 5, 6, 7, and 8. But the author of Hebrews, what he is saying is that Christ is the high priest, He is not the high priest like Aaron was, or of the line of Aaron. He's from a better priestly order. He is the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. It's the better line of priests. So it's Melchizedek, it's Jethro. Here's a spoiler alert. It's the same priestly order that David, Hezekiah, Josiah are all a part of. We're going to talk about that too. We're not there yet. So that priesthood is the priesthood that Christ is the high priesthood of. We're all a part of that priesthood now, under the great high priest, who is Christ. But then that's in chapter 5, 6, and 7. Then chapter 8 says that Jesus is the high priest, but of a better covenant, Just like Aaron's line is an inferior priestly line, so too is the covenant on Sinai an inferior covenant. What is the better covenant? So look at Hebrews 8.8. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. And basically he goes on and quotes the new covenant passage from Jeremiah 31 in Hebrews. Hebrews. So that covenant where the law is written on the hearts in Hebrews is connected back to Melchizedek and Jethro and the priesthood of the firstborn, where the law is written on their hearts. And it is of that law that Christ is the high priest over, he mediates that. Does that make sense? It's a lot of moving parts in there. So, but what, you know, where do we go with this? No. No, I'm kidding. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yes, why won't they teach their fellow citizens? Exactly. Mm, I don't think this is talking about evangelism. No, no, no. And preaching it is still necessary, too. But when you are a believer, that law, the the Holy Spirit indwelling you, changes the whole dynamic of your relationship with God. So... it's It's a law, a rule that God has made. It's basically what he, what He has deemed to be righteous and what He has deemed to be unrighteous, that which he has deemed to be right, and that he has deemed to be not right. so well it's when they say statutes, laws, commandments in the ways that we should walk, that's all legal language that's talking about. Doing what God wants us to do versus what He doesn't want us to do. Somewhat, yes. Uh huh. Y- yes. So, so this priesthood of the firstborn begins, and it quickly gets put on. On pause because of the apostasy with the golden calf. But just as God, in that priesthood of the firstborn, God called them to be a kingdom of priests, now in Christ, those who are in Christ, we too are to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation for his possession. So he is bringing that back with the church. And the Holy Spirit has written those things, those things that governed that old priesthood, the first of the firstborn, the Holy Spirit is putting those on the heart of the people now. It's a long way around all of that. Does that make sense? And, and Jethro is a pivotal, pivotal figure in all of this because he is, he is the one who connects to Melchizedek and he is also the mediator of that To Moses, so he really is a a critically important figure in the Bible, but he gets overlooked a lot. Maybe one of the most overlooked important guys, or most important overlooked guys, I should say. So, no, exactly. Right, and so, and let me, let me pull that full circle, and I'll end on this. So he, this, it wasn't new when Peter talked about it, and it wasn't new in Exodus. What was the first priesthood of the firstborn? Well, it was the firstborn. It was Adam. So this is all working towards a restoration of Eden. So all of this is going back to to the garden, which was what? Where man was in the presence of God. And we're going to get there again. And I'll end on that. So thank you guys for your patience. I know it was a lot tonight. So let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word that is a a vast and deep and never-ending pool of wisdom and insight into you. I thank you that we can see you and know you better in every page and in all the words that are therein. So we thank you for this time to study and to meditate on what you have ordained. I pray that you will help us to recognize that which is written on our hearts, that Christ is Lord and that we are to serve him. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys.